Amen. Did you tell the story this week of Jesus and his love? I hope that was the reality for you. It's good to be back with you. I'd like to ask the little ones if they'd like, if you'd like your little one to be dismissed. It's up through grade six now. They have expanded that ministry a little bit. So if you've got ones, little ones all the way through grade six, they can be dismissed downstairs to an age-appropriate service. For the rest of you, we're just starting back at Romans 1, so turn back there again. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let's look there. It's a joy to be back together with you studying the Word of God and after a, a lengthy time out of the pulpit. I'm very grateful to the leadership here at Brian for allowing some time to recover. As many of you may not know that we had a catastrophic water leak in our home while on vacation, which uh, ruined a, a good portion of our house. And so over the last uh, six weeks or so, that has been our task. Uh, my boys have learned all kinds of new trades as we've laid tile and, and hung drywall and all the things that go along with repairing a house that's been flooded. And so uh, we're well on our way to, to uh, maybe about 70% there, so we're grateful to the Lord for just uh, a chance to get that done and also to be back. And I hope that, um, because it's been a while since I've spoken to you from here, Hope you've been in your Bible, uh, regularly reading day by day. That's how the Lord designed it to be read. And if you have a way that uh, you do that, that's great. If it's just kind of random and you're just letting your Bible open up to wherever it opens up and you just read there, uh, may I propose to you perhaps a different way to go about that. Back in the back underneath the missions map, we do have a trifold there. It's uh, together in the Word. And I encourage you to take that. That'll take you through the Bible in a year. Uh, it gives uh, your, a date that corresponds with the Bible reading. You just kind of start now and this time next year you will work through your Bible cover to cover. That's an important way to go about it. Uh, reading the Bible over and over continually lets us understand more and more of the nature of God, more and more of His holy standard. It lets us be exposed to uh, a number of different situations and different people and how the Lord worked. It helps us become familiar with Him in those areas. The blessing of reading the Word is certainly rich and, and bountiful. Let me encourage you to do that. It is very important as a believer to know what the Word says. Uh, be able to uh, rightly divide it and to be able to handle that word of truth and do that so that you can apply that to your own life and to those uh, who are around you and be an encouragement and a discipler. So be in the word. Uh, also, if you are new with us, it's been a while since you've been with us, you can find notes uh, for the sermon in the center of your bulletin. If that's helpful for you, uh, behind me in the PowerPoint as we work our way through, there'll be some underlined areas that will be your takeaway for the day uh, that can help you kind of assimilate some of the things we're going to talk about. And so, uh, also, I'll be reading through, uh, as I reread the Word, through, out of the New American Standard Bible, and that's the one that I study from. So, uh, just take whatever Bible. People ask me a lot of times, what Bible should I buy? Well, buy the one that you're going to memorize, buy the one that you're going to read. Uh, we're going we're gonna to read and study through the New American Standard. You can find that in the seats in front of you, or just read your Bible. I'll always give you verse cues so we can stay together, and the richness then of, of a different translation can be yours. We're studying 1 Corinthians. And, of course, it, uh, we're beginning that this morning. As you know, it's certainly going to be an exciting book. One of the things uh, that you have to do, of course, as you know, as we've worked through several book studies together already, uh, is uh, at the beginning of every book is really to set a foundation upon which to understand the book. And we're going to do that. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians just in the beginning sense in the first three verses this morning. I've entitled this whole study, God's Plan for a Healthy Church, because I really think that's what the books are about. The church at Corinth was a church with some trouble, not unlike churches today. church at Corinth was a church with some misunderstandings, a church with some interpersonal issues, a church with some sin issues, a church with some doctrinal uh, issues. And so just like today's churches, uh, Corinth had its issues. And so 
Paul is writing, of course, and writing these two books that we have. Uh, we think there perhaps were as much as four total books, but two of them we certainly have. And so Paul has written these. The Lord has seen fit to retain them for us. And so it's important that we work our way through and kind of understand really where uh, it's directed and why Paul's writing these letters. Now, Paul starts out in the first three verses, really gives us a hint as to who the letter is addressed to. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 1, and I'm going to read all the way through verse 9, which seems to be a good stopping point for our intro this morning, although we'll probably only get with time uh, through about verse 3. But let's look at verse 1, starting with Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, verse 2, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who are in every place, call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. Verse 5 that in everything you are, were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Verse 6, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, who will also confirm you in the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's stop right there. Now, looking back briefly at verse 2, I suppose that when we hear the word saint, or when we even use the word saint, perhaps we think maybe of a Catholic image or a person of significance from the Catholic Church, because maybe that's the dominance or the significance of that word, uh, at least in our culture. But that's never the biblical meaning of the word. The word scripturally clearly does not refer to special people who have been canonized by the church council or special people uh, who are venerated. Uh, who have been, you know, some bowing and kissing and burning candles and, and uh, all, all of that by the masses to their image. It's not that at all, but that perhaps is the thing that pops in our mind when we think saint. But the term saint in the Word of God is simply defined right here in 1 Corinthians 1-2. So look there, and we'll just begin by examining that term, because I think it's important, and I'll tell you why in just a second. Look at verse 2. To the church of God that is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place Call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Now there you have the term saint used to define those who are sanctified in Christ. Those who call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So anyone then made holy in Christ, anyone calling upon his name, that is any believer, any true Christian is a saint. If you're born again, you have that title. In fact, the next time you introduce yourself, you can simply say, it's nice to meet you, I'm Saint and then fill in your name. I'm St. Curtis, uh, and that ought to start up some good conversations as you uh, begin to interact with it. You know, I've been made righteous, I've been made holy, I've been declared just by God himself through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's your title. That's a saint. That belongs to you if you are born again. Now, Paul begins in this particular section by really declaring that these Corinthians are saints, which, if you think about it, is quite a declaration when you start looking at the things that characterize their living. But he declares that they're saints and then proceeds immediately to discuss the benefits of sainthood from verses 4 to 9, and we'll get to those benefits in the future. But in the beginning of his approach to them, it's this, you are saints, and here's what it is to be a saint. And now, it appears that this uh, is an intended purpose of Paul. In Paul's mind, perhaps, the word saint 
uh, is important for them to understand. It is the, in an adjective, hagios in the Greek, used in an adjective sense here, and it just means holy one, set apart for God, to be, as it were, exclusively his, uh, clean in a moral sense, pure, you know, sinless, upright. Those are the things that describe uh, that word. They are holy. Now, what's so remarkable about this is that, in, in fact, the first Corinthians, from really the first chapter uh, all the way to uh, on out to the end of the second uh, book, uh, the letter deals with wrong doctrine and wrong behavior. So he starts out and he calls them saints, and we understand his intent. And if you could imagine any doctrinal error or behavior or moral error in the church, Corinth had it. They did everything evil conceivably that a church could do, and yet he begins by saying to them, you're saints. We all connect with that, don't we? In some form or another, we understand how that works, that struggle that's always at, in play with unredeemed flesh in our own body. So Paul, though, starts intentionally and calls them saints. Now clearly we have to remember something that we've talked about in the past, that uh, there is a very clear difference between your position before God and your practice. And no one needs to describe that to any of us, do we? Having gone through the letter from Paul to the Romans, we spent the first 11 uh, chapters dealing with who we are in Christ. And then we dealt with the next five chapters dealing with how we should act. This is known as positional holiness and then practical holiness. I'm a Christian, I'm a saint, I'm one who's been made holy before God, I'm in the eyes of God as righteous as Jesus Christ. However, I don't always act like it. My standing is defined as holiness, my behavior is defined as unholiness sometimes. So if you don't understand that distinction, then you'll really never be able to interpret the New Testament because you're going to get everything confused. So there's a certain distinction there that's very important that we need to pick up. The Corinthians were holy uh, before God because they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they had some problems in the way that they lived. Their life was not always matching up to their position. They not yet lived up to who they were. And sometimes our behavior is very similar. We don't always match up to our position either, do we? And sometimes kings don't act like kings, and sometimes presidents don't act like presidents, and leaders don't act like leaders, and teachers don't act like teachers, and pastors don't act like pastors, and deacons don't act like deacons, and so forth. Okay? And so we recognize that. But according to the Apostle Paul, the Corinthians were holy. They just didn't act like it. Positionally before God, they were in absolute righteousness because of Christ. So when Paul begins the letter to them, then he takes the first nine verses to tell them they're saints and tell them all that means. You have everything, Paul says, past, present, future that a saint would ever have. And then he begins chapter 1, verse 10, by saying, act like it. And he says it this way, 1 Corinthians 1, 10, now I exhort you, brethren. So he spends the first nine verses telling them they're saints and what that means and all that that entails. And then he springs off of that and goes into the next verses and tells them to act like it. First four words, on the basis of who I just said you are, I exhort you. Because this is your position, I encourage you. And then he starts in on the sin issues affecting the church. But he starts by stating their identity and the list of benefits that come from that being uh, set apart to God, positionally pure, clean, upright, and all of those things we just talked about. But let's look back at verse 1, if you would. Let's see how he begins the letter to them. The first word is what? Verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, that's right. Now, if you want to memorize the first word in all 13 of Paul's letters, you can do it right now, okay? That's not that tough. It's Paul, that's right. That's how he starts, okay? And so uh, I did that, so I know you guys can. This is the way the Greeks typically wrote a letter, 
okay? And so they started the letter with the name of the author, which seems a lot more reasonable to me than putting it at the end, because unless it's a business letter, the first thing you do when you get a personal letter is what? You flip it over and you look to the bottom to see who wrote it, because you want to know how much credence you're going to give to it. Am I right? I mean, you need to know whether or not you need to acknowledge a lot of the stuff that's being said, because the name at the end is going to tell you uh, something perhaps of their history, and you'll know whether, how you're supposed to approach the inter you know, taking the letter uh, to heart. It's kind of like texting, I think. When you're texting someone, you just have their number, they just have yours, but they don't have your, you in the, in the ID. What do you start with? Hey, this is Kurt, blah, 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 right? It's kind of like that. That's how Paul, that's how the Greeks wrote a letter. Start with a person uh, who is writing it. So uh, when the Greeks wrote a letter, they started off by saying, first of all, this is me talking to you. So the usual form then of a Greek letter begins with the name of the author and then the identification of the reader. And that's verse 2. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, 2. In the, in the church of God, which is at Corinth. And then a greeting, very similar to verse 3. 1 Corinthians verse, chapter 1, verse 3. Look there. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we saw in Romans that this is a very typical format for the Apostle Paul. He establishes his identity. And then immediately we look at verse 1. He establishes his authority as an apostle. And that's something that Paul did repeatedly, and there are a number of reasons why he did this. You, you don't find the other writers of the New Testament doing this in the way that Paul does. Of course, uh, not all the apostles wrote in the New Testament, but nevertheless, Paul is the one who is continually identifying himself as an apostle, and there appears to be some very specific reasons why he does this. And we're going to go through those because I think it helps us kind of set the tone and understand some of Paul's uh, tone towards the Corinthians as he works his way through the letters. Look there, if you would. It says, Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He identifies his calling to begin uh, an identification with Christ and by God's expressed will. Now, Paul's not doing this to say, hey, I'm an apostle. Be jealous, okay? He's, he's not doing it for vainglory. He's not doing it uh, in some way to draw attention to himself, to receive some kind of accolade. We put a lot of titles in front of names for numerous reasons, but the purpose doesn't have to be for their own glory or for your glory or whatever. It doesn't have to be for that. Actually, it could be establishing some authority, and that's exactly what's going on here. If we translate 1 Corinthians 1 that way, that's what Paul's doing. He's not saying, I'm an apostle, be jealous. I'm an apostle, you know, give me the respect that I deserve. Uh, not that at all. He's saying, I'm an apostle, and there is authority in that position. Please listen to me. I have authority. I speak with authority. What I'm about to say to you comes from Jesus Christ at the will of God, for therein lies my calling. So it has nothing to do with vanity. Uh, Paul has uh, nothing to do with self-glory. He absolutely and totally disdains self-glory and personal merit. Later on in 1 Corinthians, he, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. I don't deserve any of this. And so uh, what I am, I am by the grace of God. And so it's not for that reason that he calls himself an apostle. A sent one, an ambassador, an envoy, a messenger of Jesus Christ. All the things that refer to that uh, title. So first of all, it's to give authority to what he says. He gives authority to what he says. Secondly, as we've said, secondly, it identifies his relationship with the twelve. And just to explain that briefly, as you know, there were originally twelve disciples. One of them was disqualified. His name was Judas. The place was taken, according to Acts 1, by a man named Matthias. And the ranks of the twelve were then completely filled back up again. And they became the foundation for the early church. They became the authoritarian group, if you will, as you come to Acts chapter 6. It's the apostles that are really running the church. Even in Acts 2, the people were uh, studying the apostles' doctrine. That's the apostles' teaching, the things that they said, what they said during the meetings together, what they wrote. The apostles laid the foundation for the church. The twelve were known by the church as 
the authoritative voice of Christ. Now, on top of all that, here comes this new kid on the block by the name of Paul. And so, you know, one who at first introduction to the church was breathing out threatening and slaughter and killing Christians and maiming them and throwing them in prison and doing all kinds of things against the church. He hadn't lived and, and walked with Jesus Christ in his pre-death years. He had not seen the resurrected Christ before he ascended into heaven. He had, uh, and the qualifications for the apostle, according to Scripture, Acts 1, were that they know Christ in his post-resurrection reality, so they'd seen him, and they'd be specifically and personally uh, directly chosen by Christ. So simply, they had to have seen the resurrected Christ been called specifically by him. And that's one of the, the reasons we can't have any apostles today, by the way. Uh, that's the reason there couldn't be any past the biblical ones because no one since then has seen the living, resurrected Christ and been specifically commissioned by him, okay? So uh, all those who call themselves apostles, you can understand right away that just undermines, takes the rug out from under them. He has ascended into heaven and where he is until he comes again. So there's not going to be any other apostles. So the apostles, uh, the apostolate, if you will, has ceased, uh, but it was foundational according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. But here comes Paul, and he came along with it a little bit late, and so people were saying, yeah, Paul, uh -huh, we hear what you're saying, but you're not one of the twelve. You're not one with authority. So he continually establishes that he has authority, and that he was, in fact, one who saw Christ. In fact, later in this book, 1 Corinthians 15, 8, he says this, and last of all, as to one untimely born. He's speaking of those that uh, Christ revealed himself to, and then he speaks with him about himself. Uh, he appeared to me also, verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I, preached the I persecuted the church of God, verse 10, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. And so you see Paul revisit this topic numerous times, even in this letter, uh, Paul saw Christ on the Damascus Road at his conversion. He saw him in blazing glory. He was blinded by him. And you remember then, further than that, the Lord appeared to him on other occasions. He taught him. He appeared to him in Jerusalem and later telling him he would go to Rome. And so Paul was qualified. So he's identifying with the Twelve. He wants to make sure they understand that he is in the official position. And so he identifies his relationship with the Twelve so that he has accepted inequality for the sake of his teaching. Thirdly, I believe that he gives himself this title in the scriptures numerous times because of his relation to false teachers who would try to discredit him. And once again, these are connected, interconnected very loosely, as you can see. But he was continually being harassed by false teachers. Uh, teachers would come in and they would say to the people whom Paul had just taught, he has no credibility, he has no authority, he's not one of the apostles, and they'd undermine his teaching with heresy. So Paul was constantly being knocked, constantly being uh, persecuted, constantly being buffeted, uh, and so even by people who claimed to be his friends, at least uh, they were Jews and he was a Jew. Uh, but so Paul is uh, affirming his position uh, for his relationship to false teachers. And so he answers the situation that he is in uh, later in 1 Corinthians 4.9, specifically to the Corinthian believers and to believers in general. He says this, uh, 1 Corinthians 4.9, actually turn there if you would. I'd like you to just kind of read this. This is very important, I think, as he speaks about his position and about uh, the official position as, the apostle, as an apostle early in the church and kind of how they were viewed. Uh, but look at 1 Corinthians 4 9. Just turn four chapters forward and we'll read that together. <clears throat> and of course, Paul's speaking of his own experience, but I think in general he's speaking of the experience of those who led the church early on and still 
uh, for those who, pastors and teachers who lead later on. Uh, it, cer- it certainly describes the issues. Um, 1 Corinthians 4.9, says, For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you're strong. You're distinguished, but we're without honor. Verse 11. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. Verse 12. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. Verse 13. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world. That's the dregs of all things. That's the stuff you want to scrub away, by the way. Even until now... Verse 14, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. He says, I'm not writing to shame you, I'm just telling you how it is. False teachers are constantly doing this to the Apostle Paul, trying to scrub him away, trying to get rid of him, the things slandering him, all those persecuting him. And I believe that one of the reasons he establishes his apostleship is because he defends himself against those who would discredit him. So he reminds the people on a regular basis uh, that he uh, is an apostle. Fourthly, It appears that Paul gives himself this title because of his relationship to Christ. And of course, we understand this. We don't have to to expound on that too much. This had to do with the Jerusalem believers' perception of him, particularly as he was coming. They're like, he used to persecute the church. Sure, he's not a spy, all that kind of thing. So Paul wants to make sure uh, that they knew he was a true believer. 1 Corinthians 2.2, in fact, uh, Paul says this, I'm determined to know nothing among you except Christ, he says, and him crucified. That's all I want to know among you. That's all I want to teach among you. I'm a believer. This is what I want you to know. Okay? And so Paul just confirms that he's a believer. And then fifthly, it appears that he uses this title to express his relationship to the readers themselves. That's very important. He wants them to know that he's been sent to them, that he's not just an apostle, but he's an apostle, verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. So not just in general an apostle, but to them specifically with authority. His calling was to them. He's been called uh, of God to go to them with his message. 1 Corinthians 9, he defends this again, and he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 1, he says this. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Of course, all those things are yes. They're rhetorical. Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Yes, that's rhetorical. He's, He's confirmed that over and over again. Are you not my work in the Lord? What's the answer to that? Yes, again, see, um, if, if to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, he says, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. What's that mean? Well, just this, you know, your very church, the fact that it exists after 18 months of effort, proves I was sent by God to you. So he states then his title again in order to express that he is related to them in a spe- as a special messenger from God specifically to them, not just in general an apostle, but to them with authority. And then sixthly, it appears that he expresses his title uh, to show his relation to God. So he says, uh, this is, so he says this is to give his words authority, to show his relationship to the twelve, to silence false teachers, to show his relationship to Christ, to express his relationship with the Corinthians, and finally to show his relationship with God. And so uh, when he says, look back at verse 1, Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, the upshot is he's saying, God has willed, I do what I do. He's an apostle of Jesus because God has willed it to be so. Now, they understood that. Particularly the Jews understood that. They understood the word apostleship. There was a Jewish Supreme Court, and you know what it was called. It's called the Sanhedrin. 
It was made up of 70 of the wisest elders of Israel, and they made the decisions regarding every Jew in the world, religious decisions, moral decisions. And what would happen is this. When anyone had a problem in any place, if it couldn't be settled at the council of their own synagogue, they'd send that to the highest court, and it would go to the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin then would make a decision, a judgment, a verdict on whatever this issue was, and then they would dispatch a man to take the verdict back to that community of Jews uh, that they had asked for that decision, and then uh, that man was called an apostolos. And so that person would come, rendering the decision from the Sanhedrin, and so he was called an apostle, he sent one, he was a messenger, if you will, an envoy, an ambassador, an agent. He would be sent back then, and he would speak on behalf of that group. I speak with the authority then of the Sanhedrin. Here is their verdict, and he'd give them the verdict. So Paul's saying, I'm not an independent operator here. I come as an envoy from the throne of God. I give you God's judgment, see? And so Paul says, listen, I'm coming from the Lord. I'm going to render to you what he wants you to know. And he uses all the words that they're going to connect with. Okay? So very important. So he helps them understand uh, his apostleship in a number of different ways. He's not gloating. He's not boasting. Now, we looked at the position of the apostle. And we could go into it again. But we've gone through it several times very recently. The beginning of our study in the book of Romans. Again, at the end of our study in the book of Romans. And then in a, a corollary study in 2 Corinthians 12, 12 about... Uh, the position of an apostle, whether they exist today, and the signs of the apostle, and all of that stuff, okay? So if you want to connect with that, I won't go through it again. You can go back and listen to that treatment of Paul's position in a number of different places online. So Paul introduces himself then by establishing the fact that his, he is authoritative, that what he's going to say is authoritative. It represents what the Lord wants them to hear, and he says it over and over. He's God's man speaking to them. Now, from there... He goes on and he adds another very interesting note at the end of verse 1. And I love this. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.1. No, we're there already. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. Now, this is Paul's writer. An amanuensis, if you will. Paul would dictate uh, what he wanted the people to read, and this uh, person or other people there who served in that position would write it out, and very often Paul in his letters would sign with his own signature, but it would be written by someone Paul was dictating to. Maybe someone he wrote the letter, uh, maybe sometimes he would write part of the letter himself, uh, but usually he dictated it to someone who would write it down for him. So here's this guy, Sosthenes. Now, he's Paul's writer. He never bothers, though, if you read through Paul's writings, he never bothers to put the name of the writer in the front and this is a very, very good reason to do it, and there is here, and so I'm going to give it to you. Uh, the idea is this. Sosthenes isn't just writing this, he's agreeing with it. You recognize Paul's writing a church with some difficulties, some hardships, some, some sins, some issues that Paul's going to have to deal with. They're going to be very hard. If you've read First and Second Corinthians, you understand that. And so Paul is writing, and he says, Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, he is adding some credibility. Because Sosthenes knew the Corinthian situation. I'd like you to turn to Acts 18, and you're going to see how he knew uh, the Corinthian situation. It's one of the joys of studying the Word of God, reading the Word of God, is kind of connecting, if you will, all the names and seeing where they came from. And many times we can do that. At the end of Romans 16, chapter 16, of course, some of the things, names we couldn't trace down because there wasn't any other place in the Scriptures that talked about it. But the joy of finding them and seeing what their background was is rich. And this is one of those places. Acts 18, verse 8. Acts 18, and you know this, uh, is, records for us some of the most interesting things that happened in Corinth. 
Acts 18 records the founding of the church at Corinth by Paul, and we'll meet Sosthenes. And as you know, Paul didn't really get a grand welcome when he came to Corinth. Uh, as was typical, the Jews threw him out, but what was really typical is after the Jews threw him out, the revival began and the chief ruler of the synagogue got saved. Okay, so Paul doesn't get a warm welcome, he gets tossed out, the ruler of the synagogue got saved. And that's what we're going to pick up in, in Acts 18, verse 8. Look there if you would. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. Now that's going to be problematic for the Jews. Okay? After they just tossed Paul out, uh, the leader of the synagogue now is a believer. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So this whole revival, this whole uh, evangelistic effort is breaking out, not a revival rather, but just come, people coming to faith and just an amazing stuff happening here. Verse 9, and the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, which implies that Paul was afraid. Uh, he was terrified. There was a lot of animosity against him, a lot of threats breathed out against him. People didn't want him there. The Jews particularly didn't want him there. And now that uh, Crispus has come to faith in his household and a bunch of other Corinthians, that's a real big problem for Paul. So Paul's probably a little worried at night when he's all alone. He's thinking, you know, I'm going to die here. Nobody's ever going to find my grave or whatever. Okay, so Paul's worried. But the Lord comes to him in the night by a vision, says, don't be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. That's very encouraging to Paul because there weren't very many before he started. But now there are. The gospel's spreading out, and of course it's real, and people are getting saved, and they're changing in the way they act, and that by itself is this great witness. And you used to go to the temples, and now you don't, and you worship the, the true God, and you, you used to worship a pantheon of gods. That's a huge difference in your life, and people are coming to faith. So, since the chief ruler of the synagogue was saved, they had to get a new one. And you know who the new ruler was? Sosthenes. Sosthenes is the new ruler. He was the new guy leading the mob against Paul. He's anti-Paul. So later in verse 12, we see that they decided they're going to attack Paul, so they drag him to the judgment seat, and they said, look at verse 13, Acts, Acts 18, verse 13, saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Now right here, as you just read this passage, you don't know what law they're talking about, okay? They could be talking about Jewish law, Roman law, whatever. They're just trying to get an indictment against him and get rid of him. Gallio, however, was smart. And then we clarify what law they're talking about in verse 14. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or of vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. And that's not good language, okay? If you go to court and you, you got this, uh, you're trying to get an indictment, you're trying to get some kind of uh, judgment on your side, and the judge says, why am I even putting up with you? All right, that's not a good thing. It's not, you're not looking like you're going, you need to fire your attorney and hire a new one, okay? If we're a matter of wrong or a vicious crime of Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you, verse 15, but if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourself. I'm unwilling to be a judge in these matters, verse 16, and he drove them away from the judgment seat. Clear the court. Then what happened? Look at verse 17. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the what? What's it say? The leader of the synagogue. So Sosthenes is the point man for, for uh, bringing some kind of accusations against Paul. And they began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Now when it says they all, it, it just means both Jews and Greeks. Everybody who was there began to beat Sosthenes. He's, he's the go-to guy. He's the uh, fall guy. So they're just going to beat him up. And you, you think, you know, why would the Greeks beat him? Well, probably for taking up Gallio's time. He's like, why am I putting up with you? Get out of here. We don't even like you. Go. 
Okay? And why would the Jews beat him up? Well, that's obvious because he did such a lousy job of presenting their case that it got thrown out of court and his own people beat him up. Bad job, Sosthenes, all right? We're canning you. So what's interesting about this is, is here's the leader of the anti-Paul gang. It's, he's being beaten up in chapter 8, 14, verse 7. But by the time Paul writes 1 Corinthians, he says, our brother Sosthenes. Sosthenes is now writing, Paul's dictating, and he says he's here. That's crazy, isn't it? I just think that's amazing. It's an amazing story of conversion is what it is. And Paul probably just focused on Sosthenes after that. I mean, Sosthenes got pounded there in front of the court. And so he gets dragged home to, to be doctored or whatever. And uh, I'm sure he became Paul's focus. Paul probably visited him while he was recovering and gave the gospel clearly again. And obviously Sosthenes comes to faith. He comes to faith in such a way that Paul trusts him to be the amanuensis for him as he writes this letter. And so Sosthenes adds a lot of credibility to Paul's writing, doesn't he? People in Corinth would say, you know, Rutro, you know, he knows us. And Sosthenes is there. I mean, Paul's a newcomer. He was here 18 months. Sosthenes is from here. He knows all about it. And you can imagine, as Paul would write, being away, they would say, you don't understand the culture. You don't understand how our church has to function here at Corinth, whatever. But Sosthenes is there. Paul says, listen, I'm writing this, and our brother Sosthenes is writing this too. And that gives a lot of credibility then to Paul's writing. Because Sosthenes knows what's going on. And so he knows... Uh, you know, Paul has his ear, and, and Sosthenes has Paul's ear, and so as Paul writes, Sosthenes fills in the gaps, and so it gets a lot of credibility. And I love that part about uh, study as you look around and kind of chase around. So it adds a lot of potency to his introduction. All right, let's go to the beginning of verse 2, and with this we're going to close this morning. Look at verse 2. Now, I think it's, it's a great place to end because really as it deals with the church, and we can kind of see, we can kind of, it kind of rings true for us. And we're going to work our way through this book, and you're going to see that it rings true. Every church kind of falls in in some places. You're going to see these attitudes. But here, I love this. To the church of God, which is at Corinth. So keep in mind that the church is not the church of the Corinthians. It's the church of whom? It's the church of God, isn't it? The church belongs to God. This is God's church. It's not your church. Berean's not your church. You may have helped to plant it. You may have uh, helped to put the drywall on the walls or whatever it is, or you've put a lot of labor in, but it's not your church, is it? This is God's church, right? And one of the perspectives that the believer always has to have is that the church is a body of people and not a building. And that body of people belongs to the Lord, whatever church it is. It's not an organization. It's not a denomination. Not a few who were in on the start. Not any person or persons, but... It belongs to God. And this kind of perspective is the steward's perspective, beloved, okay? Because that's what we are. And those of you who aspire to ministry, those of you who are in seminary now, you're looking forward to, uh, to leading the Lord's church, you've got to recognize that's who it belongs to, see? See, I look at this church, this is not my church. It's God's church. He's given me the responsibility of caring for it, for him. And that's a very heavy responsibility, if I were just taking care of the church for myself, then my standards would be way too low, you see. If I was only the one, if, if it was only me that it had to be answered to, you see. But caring for it for God gives me a tremendously high standard I have to reach. That's the perspective of a steward, see. As you look at the church, you recognize it belongs to the Lord. He's given some instructions concerning it, how it's to be set up, how it's to be run, how the, what's supposed to be happening, what are the priorities for it. And that merely becomes our identity. It has to become our identity. Not what necessarily I want or whatever 
It's the Lord's church. He's given some instructions for it, and he's given some people to care for it. That's the perspective of a steward. That's the way you have to look at your life as well, beloved. Because you're part of this building, you're part of this group, you're part of this organism called the church. And that's a stewardship because it belongs to the Lord. Your responsibility is to minister to the church just as well as to minister to other believers. And they are God's possession. Always keep that in mind. That little Sunday school class you teach, the children's church class you do, the little uh, thing on Sunday night you do with the preschoolers, the high school ministry, whatever it is, see. And whatever you're going to get involved with, that little yellow sheet you filled out, the bistro or whatever, when you're serving someone, you're filling in somewhere, you're involved with Awana, you're driving a bus over to Liberty, you're, you're cutting the grass, whatever it is, see. It's a steward's perspective. Church belongs to the Lord, so you do your work, you involve yourself as unto him for his glory and under his authority. So minister knowing that the church belongs to the Lord. And that's Paul really reminding them that this isn't your church. This is God's church, as he writes to the Corinthians. I don't know if you remember, but as Paul prepared to leave the Ephesian elders, Acts 20, 28, he says, Be on your guard for yourselves, for all the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, he says, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So as you think about your ministry and you think about the church belonging to the Lord, remember that the price uh, that it cost him was very high and care for the church with that in mind. Now, next time, as we introduce our new study, we're going to look at Corinth. It's a fascinating place. It's going to help us understand the church and the culture where it functioned. And we're going to look at a lot of the background of Corinth, some of the things that were happening there uh, during that time of Paul. And so this will help kind of lay the foundation uh, for us to begin our study, to understand something about the people who were there, something about the trouble that the church uh, was in, some of the difficulties that they had, and of course, how the Lord wants to deal with those things as he makes for himself a pure church and gives us the instructions about how that's to be accomplished. Let's bow together as we uh, begin to close our time to invite you to bow your head. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We're grateful for your word, as we always say, so grateful for its clarity, for uh, how timely it is for us, how it resonates with us, sometimes not pleasantly, but uh, reveals in us faulty parts, takes us apart, shows the places that need to be repaired, and then gives us the parts to put back in. And Lord, as we begin this new study, it's our desire really to understand what you would have us to know. We want to understand, of course, the letters that Paul wrote and in their context to the people that were to receive them, but the application, of course, there will be many applications for us. And so I pray that you'll help us by your Holy Spirit to understand that. We make no boast that we will understand exactly what you want us to know. But we pray that uh, as you are aware of what goes on inside uh, the ministry here, those who are here on a week-to-week basis, you also will prepare their hearts to hear your word. And as I prepare those uh, notes in the foolishness of preaching, you'll use your Holy Spirit to bring your church to full growth, to maturity. It's our desire to be a mature church, involved in the things that you've told us to be involved in, following the example of your Son. And so, Father, it is our prayer as we start this new new time together, that this won't be the only time we check in with the Word, but this will be the time we check in with the Word corporately, but that we'll spend time each day devouring your Word, spending time in prayer with you as we read it, 
recognizing places where we fall short and asking you for forgiveness and help and recognizing the blessings that come that are revealed to us in your word and rejoicing and worshiping you and all of that. So for your guidance, we ask uh, for that, for your understanding, for your application. We desire all these things as we start this new journey together. May your will be done. May your church be what you desire it to be. For the sake of your son, Jesus, who purchased it with his own blood, and this is his name that we pray in all God's people said, amen.